1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 15235 kHz on the 31m band to West Africa. My name is Spomela Lezondi and I am with Wissani Matebula and Tamikuza this hour. Let's take a look at your top stories. Tensions are high in the capital, Bujumbura. Two days before the expiration of the ultimatum given by Burundi's president to owners of illegal weapons. The South Sudan government and rebel faction have denied UN reports that they're planning to rearm and continue with the internal conflicts in their country. And Dr. Patrick Nilla Namogna of Cameroon has won the 2015 Kwame Nkrumah Young Scientist Award. And in sports, South African sports minister not aware of mayor's contract extension. Let's get the news from Musani Matabula. Good evening. British Transport Secretary Patrick McLaughlin says he hopes uh, the flights uh, will be back to the UK from the Egyptian resort of Sham al-Sheikh could resume on, fr- on Friday. McLaughlin was addressing Parliament today. Britain suspended all flights home from the Red Sea resort on Wednesday, stranding thousands of tourists after saying there was a significant possibility that an explosive device brought down a Russian airliner that crashed killing 224 people in the Sinai Peninsula last week. Botswana wants 10 Eritrean soccer players had granted asylum to be resettled in another country by the United Nations as under Botswana law. They must stay in a refugee camp for another 10 years. A government official said the Southern African nation was not withdrawing asylum for the players but giving them a chance to seek refuge in a country where the resettlement process was faster. The players claimed asylum on October 13 after playing the match against Botswana, becoming the latest in a series of defections by athletes from a country under investigation by the United Nations for human rights violations. Tanzania's new president, John Magafuli, has been sworn in at a ceremony attended by thousands of people and several regional heads of state. Magufuli succeeds former president Jakaya Kikwete, who served two terms. Uhuru Stadium in Dar es Salaam is packed to capacity with jubilant supporters. Dignitaries at the ceremony include President Jacob Zuma, Sadek Chair Robert Mugabe, and East African leaders like Rwandan President Paul Kagame and Kenya Uhuru Kenyatta. The South African police and the forensic pathology services are remaining tight-lipped regarding allegations that the body of a Zimbabwean student left a Cape Town mortuary in South Africa without her heart. The 20-year-old Zanele Moyo, daughter of Zimbabwe's higher education minister, Jonathan Moyo, was found dead in a flat about two weeks ago. She was studying in the University of Cape Town. Spokesperson for the South African Police Ministry, Musa Zondi, say they are assisting the family where they can. Forensic pathology spokesperson, Robert Daniels. The case in question is subject to a South African Police Service investigation in terms of the Inquest Act. The Western Cape Government Health Forensic Pathology Service is therefore unable to comment on any of the details surrounding this specific incident. 
Statistics indicate that at least one-third of all women in Rwanda report experiencing some form of violence from about the age of 15. For a long time, victims of gender-based violence feared reporting to authorities or seeking medical assistance due to stigma. The introduction of one-stop centers stationed inside district hospitals offering free services for survivors of child domestic abuse and gender-based violence has not only helped victims report such cases, but it also helping keep the vices. Coordinator for Isanje NGO in Rwanda, Shafiga Murebzaire. When we do a report, any case of sexual assault, let's take an example, that does not have that medical legal report that indicates that this really happened and it so and so did this, then we will definitely fail the case. But because of those re- medical legal reports, the evidence that we get from by the help of the Isaji One Stop Centers, definitely the, the prosecution rates increases, especially when these people come on time, because we always try to, to encourage them to report the instances as soon as they happen, because after the 72 hours, then we cannot see the evidence that we, we want. And finally, an Egyptian court is beginning a final retrial of former President Hosni Mubarak, who's charged with complicity in the murders of hundreds of protesters during the 2011 uprising that ended his rule. Mubarak, who's now 87 years old, was convicted as at his first trial a year later and sentenced to life imprisonment. He successfully appealed that verdict, and the retrial is the last legal proceedings in the case. And that's your news for now. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen oh six Central African time. We listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, with Miss Pomela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until about eighteen hundred hours this evening. Let's start in Burundi, where tensions are reported to be high in the capital, Bujumbura, two days before the expiration of the ultimatum given by the country's president, Pierre Nkurunziza, to owners of illegal weapons. President Nkurunziza has ordered police force to use all legal means at their disposal to retrieve all arms in the wrong hands. The message was followed by the disposal to retrieve all arms in the wrong hands rather. The message was followed by visits by the country's high officials whereby they threatened to use force to disarm all armed groups hiding among residents. Reports from the capital Puchumbura say several people are fleeing their homes fearing violence that would break out from an imminent police operation from Bujumbura, we joined by our correspondent now he has been at bangkokira hello and welcome to channel africa bernard and welcome to africa digest yes uh, thank you so much uh, bernard could you just tell us what's happening in Bujumbura at the moment uh, with respect to um to the arms and the police hunting down those illegal arms 
Yes, uh, we have to say that uh, now the situation in Mujindoa is so tense, whereby residents, uh, especially those living in the anti-fair-term neighborhood, fearing a crackdown by police or simply an open confrontation between police and armed groups that might follow the expiration of the warning given by the President uh, recently, it was on uh, November 2nd, uh, who ordered police to use all means they had to retrieve all the weapons. Now, what's much more threatening to residents of those neighborhoods uh, are these threatening messages delivered by top country leaders and uh, Tuesday and Wednesday tours in those areas uh, whereby they met local leaders. So the messages delivered there were full of threats voting even to engage in fierce fighting with armed groups in those areas in case they failed. They, they failed to 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 to, to hand all weapons back. Now, uh, today, since morning, residents of those insurrectional, which I can say that insurrectional areas, as um, say the officials, especially in the north of the capital, uh, they have been moving out of the areas. So we have been observing people escaping desperately with their mattresses, the kitchen tools, and the others to the places where they expect maybe they must be safe. So this is the current situation. It's a tense situation in Bujumbura now. Where are these places of safety, Bernard? Yes, sir? Where are these places of safety that some people are fleeing to? Now, now they are fleeing to neighboring neighborhoods, in the neighborhoods which they expect maybe that the situation might be safe. Uh, because during the protest, there are some neighborhoods which remained quiet. Uh, there are some neighborhoods which remained very uh, peaceful, while others were under uh, gunshots. So people are moving from the the, 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 the areas, uh, from the insurrectional areas, to these places, thinking that maybe the, the situation might continue to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hearing of some deaths as well, people being killed. Um, could you just give us reports of that? Or, uh, what's the situation there? Yeah, now, of course, yesterday, yesterday night, I mean, Wednesday night, we had some gunshots, sporadic gunshots in the north of the capital, Bodimbula, uh, whereby uh, four, people, four people are confirmed to have been killed, um, dead bodies were seen in the streets in the morning, but no one can tell you exactly what happened. Uh, at, uh, no one can tell you whether there was a confrontation between armed groups and police. Um, and this also contributed to the massive displacement of people we have observed since morning today, because people, they think that uh, if the, uh, the harsh messages were delivered, and we are seeing these gunshots and we're discovering these dead bodies in the streets or in our neighborhood. So they think even that from this night, the, the coming night, the situation might be as dramatic as uh, it might be. Mm. Um, do we know the numbers of the bodies that have been reported to have been seen? Yes, sir. The number? The numbers of the bodies that have been reported to have been seen. Um, do we know those numbers? 
Until now, we cannot know the exact numbers because the police hasn't uh, yet given any report on that. So maybe we are, wa- we are waiting. We try to get into uh, contact with uh, the police spokesman and the local leaders now to give them that some, especially local leaders, fear to speak. But the police is yet to say anything about that. Um, Bernardo, have the country's leaders, and that includes uh, President Pierre Kurunziza, said anything about what's happening at the moment, the current spate of violence? Now, the only message maybe given right now is only threat. Now, following the ultimatum given by the president, uh, the message delivered uh, uh, on Wednesday, uh, on on Monday, uh, this week, all the messages that have been given by ministers of security and home affairs, as well as the vice president of the public, are not reassuring because only threats are displayed to local leaders. Uh, it's also to be mentioned that uh, uh, two days ago, before the president's address to the national on this Monday, the president of the Senate, the president of the Senate also toured some of the protesting neighborhoods, whereby he gave harsh warning considered by many as a message of genocide. And this was also questioned by uh, some UN officials in Washington because they could read it on their their websites. So many think that this is an announcement of a genocide. Maybe there is a kind of exaggeration, but something bad is expected by so many here in the Zimbabwe. All right, Bernard Bakunkira, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, most welcome. Benat Bankukira there is our correspondent in the capital of Burundi, Puchumbura. The African Union has warned of its deep concern for the troubled Burundi and the wider region if arrivals do not resolve political differences peacefully. AU Commission Chief Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma says she is worried at the continuation of acts of violence and the increase of statements that are likely to further aggravate the current situation. If the crisis is not solved, it would create conditions for instability. And that is more instability with devastating consequences for Burundi and the whole region. Jacob Eno Eben is the spokesperson and we are about to we're going to hear from Jacob Eno Eben right after this short break. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I love you. 
Africa rising through innovative technologies to improve the quality of life of its people. From the 29th of November to the 3rd of December 2015, South Africa's city of gold, Johannesburg, will host the 7th AfroCities Summit. Delegates will have an opportunity to reflect on the challenges that local governments and partner states are faced with, the state of affairs and what steps have been taken to ensure that the objective to build a network of smart cities is realized. Channel Africa will be there bringing you live coverage. All right, let's go back to our top story on Burundi now. The African Union has warned of its deep concern for troubled Burundi and the wider region if rivals do not resolve political differences peacefully. AU Commission Chief Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma says she is worried at the continuation of acts of violence and the increase of statements that are likely to further aggravate the current situation. If the crisis is not solved, it would create conditions for more instability with devastating consequences for Burundi and the whole region. Jacob Eno Eben is is the spokesperson of the chairperson of the Bureau of the Chairman of the African Union. If you very well know the Great Lakes region, you would understand that if ever there is an issue in one of the countries, it definitely will impact on the sub-region for a number of reasons, because of politics, because of the geography, because of the culture, and because of the nature of the regional economic communities that are in that region. And whether it's um, Burundi or the DRC or Rwanda, or for that matter, even, you know, we talk of Tanzania or Uganda, if ever there is a situation of insecurity or a humanitarian situation that occurs in any of the countries, it definitely would impact the rest of the sub-regions. And I'll just give you a clear example. When earlier this year, particularly around April, the situation in Burundi started escalating and people, for fear of insecurity, started leaving the country. You had those numbers of refugees increasing in neighboring countries. And if these neighboring countries haven't been ready, to receive large numbers of influx. Now it would impact on the humanitarian situation and we can continue analyzing from whether the security perspective, the humanitarian perspective, or even economic aspect of it. So it's very important that whenever there is a crisis of any nature in any of the countries, it's important that it is resolved locally or nationally, of course, with the input of all the other members of the region in order to prevent or prevent any further escalation. But what is the likelihood of rivals resolving their political differences peacefully? You know, it seems to me that things might have gone too far now for that. Uh, the likelihood is there. It's not really gotten that bad. It wasn't by the day, I should emphasize. And that's for that reason that the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Excellency Dr. Kusazana Dlaminizuma, raised one more her concern about the situation, that it's important that dialogue resumes as soon as possible, soon as possible for all the stakeholders to clearly, you know, put the interest of Burundi at the forefront of every other thing in order to prevent a further deterioration of the situation. So the likelihood is there. The East African community is trying to try with hard. Um, some challenges that have caused the delay of the, the, the takeoff of the dialogue, which is, as you know, led by President 
here in the Sudanese of, of Uganda. But nevertheless, if you follow the media last week, we had his uh, minister who went to Burundi to get the dialogue of the ground again. It's important that these actors in Burundi really sit together and find out very peaceful ways of um, resolving the issues and uh, avoid the country from, you know, living on the game that they've had in the past 10 years following the improved situation of peace and security and uh, development for that matter. Now, with all that is happening, the killings, the arrests, the detentions, and with over 200,000 refugees having fled or fleeing to neighboring countries, would you say that Burundi risks sliding back into civil war? The risk is there. The risk is there. And again, I just reiterate the point made by High Excellency Dr. Zuma that it's important that the actors in Burundi take their responsibilities into their hands. And if you would recall, the Peace and Security Council met in the middle of October last month. And after examining the situation in Burundi, decided to increase the number of human rights and military observers to be deployed there. And decided to also fill the African Commission of Human and People's Rights. And they've been given 45 days, within which they have to carry out investigations in Burundi and report to the Peace and Security Council. So hopefully... In the month of, um, of December, we'll be getting a report from, from there. And the Peace and Security Council will be looking at those who are most likely to bear highest responsibility for the, the sort of violence that we are seeing today. It's for that same reason that the attention is being called for those who may be perpetrating these sorts of crimes to really be aware that there is going to be accountability and that the Peace and Security Council, as already indicated, will be making out targeted sanctions against all those Burundian actors who, either through action or through their statement, may be contributing to impede the, the dialogue or on improving the peace and security situation in Burundi. Now, the African Union has also launched an investigation into human rights abuses in Burundi. But what else can the organization do in itself to rectify the situation there? Well, we've already talked about uh, the action that the African Union has done. The Peace and Security Council is is key on the matter. The United Nations Security Council is equally... The UN Secretary General has actually made statements supporting the role that the actions that are being taken by the African Union. The chairperson has consistently made statements in public and has actually been engaging with the actors also behind the scenes. So there's quite a number of things that are taking place to prevent the sort of violence that we are seeing in Burundi happening on a day-to-day basis. It's of really serious concern to the chairperson and she really wants to make sure that the situation is brought under control as soon as possible. Jacob Ben is a spokesperson of the chairperson at the Bureau of Chairman at the African Union, and he was speaking to Jose Kotingake, and he was on the line from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Your time is 17.23 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The South Sudan government and rebel faction have denied United Nations reports so that they are planning to rearm and continue with the internal conflict in their country. The two factions say an agreement they have reached to implement security arrangements during the transnational government 
during the transitional government rather period should be proof that they are planning to end the war. Here's Coletta Wanjoy. In a report presented to the United Nations, experts have warned of the possibility of the government of South Sudan and rebel faction led by former Vice President of the country, Riyad Mashar, rearming and continuing the two-year conflict that has so far killed thousands, displaced more than one million people, and rendered more than half a million South Sudanese as refugees. The report presented to the United Nations by experts monitoring South Sudan explains that they are examining the flow of arms into South Sudan and have credible independent reports that both the government and the opposition were boosting their supplies. Michael McQuay, the South Sudan Information Minister, has denied this, saying that they have just signed an agreement with the rebel faction to implement security arrangements that are stipulated in the August 2015 peace agreement signed by President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Mashar. We have not been able to move forward all this time because without proper security arrangements on the ground, we would not be in a position to talk of implementation of any other provisions in the agreement. And today we have set the phase onward. Today we have started, we will start the implementation as we move from here. I hope this will be the last meeting here in Addis because from now onwards we are transferring the implementation of the agreement into South Sudan. Tabandeng, the chief negotiator of the rebel faction, has also denied this UN report. He says that they are committed to ending the conflict and that is why the rebels have decided that by mid-November of this year, they will proceed to Juba, the capital of South Sudan, to begin the plans of forming a transitional government as the peace agreement demands. A few days ago we have signed a very important document, timelining the activities that we are going to carry out. And importantly, I have to announce here that by the middle of this month, the SPLMSPLA delegation should be in Juba. Once again, Comrade Michael, prepare for our reception. The government and the rebels have agreed to a joint security force of 4,830 personnel to remain in Juba during the transitional government period. Of this, the government will contribute 3,420. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Dr. Patrick Linla Lemunya of Cameroon has won the 2015 Kwame Nkrumah Young Scientist Award. The research work which earned Lemunya the international award was carried out on the valorization of locally made materials from volcanic ashes and lead laterites in the production of eco-friendly building materials in his native Cameroon. The award is an annual event in recognition of best research work carried out by African young researchers and is aimed at uh, promoting research and innovation in Africa. Here's Moke Kinzaka. This applause from members of Cameroon's Academy of Sciences is in honor of Dr. Patrick Ninla Limunya as he presents the Young Scientist African Union Award, dubbed the Nkwame Kuma Award to his peers. The 35-year-old says six years ago, when Cameroon announced it wanted to increase its cement production to 3 million tons a year, he went finding out the impact to the environment. To produce one ton of cement, you produce approximately one ton of CO2 into the atmosphere. And now in the world, the production of cement is about 2 billion of tons per year. And due to the need for building materials, this need for cement is actually going to increase. The research on this topic is showing that by 2000, 
2025, the semen production will be around 2.5 billion tons per year. So emitting in the atmosphere also 2.5 billion of, of tons of CO2. Patrick says after finding out the potential danger for Cameroon and countries planning to increase their cement production, he decided to investigate on alternatives that can be used without effects on the environment. In Cameroon, we have seen that uh, we have a lot of volcanic ash which are not exploited and also laterite. And we have seen in the composition of those two raw materials that chemically it is possible to be used for the production of building material using this technology. According to Patrick, not only carbon dioxide will be reduced, Cameroonians will increase the offer of building materials with related socioeconomic advantages such as job creation. Jobati Joseph of Cameroon's local material promotion agency says if Patrick's recommendations are applied by the government of Cameroon, many more people will have access to housing. It is now for government to see how pilot production units or industrial units could be built so that these materials can actually be manufactured in greater quantities so that the cost of acquiring these materials will also go down and the local, uh, I, I mean the average Cameroonian, can then acquire lodging. Because when you get into even towns like Yaoundé here in the capital of Cameroon, you see uh, certain areas where people are living, they are quite really disheartening. And this is due to the fact that the construction materials in Cameroon are quite expensive. Among the members of Cameroon's Academy of Sciences who were out to encourage Patrick was Dr. Nzeku Alain. He says the researcher has had good results which all developing countries should make good use to protect the environment. He says the researcher is highly engaged with his research work and when it was difficult for him to continue because of the lack of funds, he was not discouraged and contacted partners right in Belgium and other countries. He says they as researchers are honored and we want to work like Patrick, but that the government should make sure the results are implemented. Dr. Patrick Nindan Lumonga says he will be taking his research findings to the November 30 Climate Change Forum in Paris, where world leaders are expected to meet and discuss how to save the environment. Those who can take the decision can try to invest on environmentally friendly technology, so this can help to preserve the life for future generations because you cannot see the effect directly, but at long time you will see that things are changing and Sometimes things will change on the bad way. The 35-year-old whom Cameroon is celebrating has co-authored 14 articles, 12 of them in international journals, most of them on environmentally friendly and cost-effective use of local material in building construction. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. In your headlines this hour, British Transport Secretary Patrick McLaughlin says he hopes that flights 
back to the UK from the Egyptian resort of Sham al-Sheikh could resume on Friday. Botswana wants 10 Eritrean soccer players it granted asylum to be resettled in another country by the United Nations as under Botswana law they must stay in a refugee camp for 10 years. And Tanzania's new president, John Magufuli, has been sworn in at a ceremony attended by thousands of people and several regional heads of state. These were the stories making headlines this hour. The prestigious and growing South African Literary Awards celebrate their 10th anniversary this year with an action-packed two-day program of exciting African literature, music, dance and art live show and expo on the 6th and 7th November at the Twane Event Centre, Pretoria, South Africa. Prof. Michelle Mugel, world-renowned activist, academic and author, will deliver the fourth International African Writers' Day Lecture. Join Channel Africa as we broadcast live from the event, bringing you all the speeches and artists such as Kyorapeti, Khosizile, Menyato Matole, Mole Fepeto, Ariel Zamonski, Bernice Bigano, Gloria Bosman, Femi Koya, Lififitadi, Pitikantuli, and more. For more information, visit www.sala.org.za. Taura Africa, Bua Africa. Proudly brought to you by the Right Associates, the South African Department of Arts and Culture, and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Seventeen thirty-four Central African Time. Remember that you can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One there, Channel Africa Numerical One on Twitter. And if you want to send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. You still listen to Africa Digest with Miss Pumela Lezondi until eighteen hundred hours Central African Time. Now, from global financial crises to cybercrime, globalization has its downsides. In today's business slot, the director of the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom, Professor Ian Golden, discusses the pitfalls of the global community's ever closer union and offers some possible remedies to its darker side. The shocks are changing the nature of politics and they're also changing the nature of economies. But it's also the case that um, it's leading to growing inequality because the poor always suffer most from risk. Uh, they are, have the least savings, they're the most vulnerable. That, of course, leads to lower social cohesion. Politics is becoming more fragmented. People are feeling more and more uncertain about the future. 
They don't believe that globalization, by which I mean integration, connectivity, leads to more stable outcomes, and they therefore want to retreat from this. And so what we're seeing in many countries of the world is a retreat from openness and connectivity, increasing nationalism, protectionism, xenophobia. As we become more nationalist and inward-looking, as we become more short-term, we are less capable of dealing with the long-term big joined-up challenges. And so whether it's climate change, antibiotic resistance, financial crises, countries are withdrawing uh, from their capabilities. And so the likelihood of crises actually increases paradoxically. So tell me some about that need for basically continued globalization and, and better, more directed globalization to sort of be the antidote to this problem, because that instinct to withdraw actually makes, makes it worse. Why is that the case? Virtually anything we think about which will affect our futures positively uh, or negatively will come from beyond our national borders. And so what happens on the other side of the world increasingly shapes our futures. And so unless we coordinate with others, we're not going to be able to manage our future. Now, this doesn't mean that one has to coordinate with 201 countries. Different things require different sets of actors. If it's climate change, a dozen countries account for over 90% of carbon emissions. One needs the affected as well as the affecting in the room for legitimacy. You wouldn't have the mafia bosses in the room to write a new penal code. In the same way, you wouldn't want all the biggest polluters uh, to design new pollution or carbon standards. And so the design of who you're having in a risk management conversation and who you need at the table should reflect the problem at hand uh, rather than a sort of United Nations, one country, one vote, uh, makes sense. And getting that right is part of the needed reform of the global system. So you've said before that uh, these sort of international coalitions often arise out of crises um, and, and af essentially after crises. So a lot of these shocks that you mentioned happen so quickly and at such levels of complexity. How can that kind of coalition uh, grow up in response to them in any way that's useful until it's too late? Well, I think there are a number of um, different dimensions to, to solving this problem. The one is that there are magnificent global institutions that have been created in response to previous crises, the WHO, the IMF, uh, and many others. IMF's job is global financial stability. WHO is global health. Many of the, the challenges these institutions face is they, not least the WHO, they're starved of funds and they're starved of reform capability. One of the reasons why we had this crisis of Ebola was that WHO was starved of funds and, and local capabilities. Other issues are orphan issues. International migration is a classic orphan issue, although the UNHCR is doing a magnificent job on refugees, one part of immigration. And it's an, it's an orphan issue in the sense that it's, it's not necessarily connected to the, the immediate interests of any of the players. Absolutely. Okay. And that, in fact, some of the big players have an interest in not resolving the problem because they don't want to be bound by the rules of an international system. Um, cyber is an orphan issue, and this must be the most significant orphan issue. There's no global cyber crisis management capability, and this is vital. So some of these issues, there's a growing awareness where society is catching up with science, and then the politicians are catching up with society. So you have these lags um, which can allow the problem to brew until it's very, very big. 
And I'm struck by something you said about how some players, it actually is in their interest not to have these crises resolved or not to have issues resolved. They a lot of times have uh, sort of a lot of resources and the ability to adapt to these crises a lot faster and actually benefit from them. You know, we've talked about who hasn't benefited from, from globalization, but there are people making vast amounts of money off of these exact defects. Yes, that's absolutely the case that there's some big winners out of this. And, and, and a lot of the bads, of course, are, are run, uh, in the case of cyber, by uh, malicious actors, uh, crooks that are making money out of it, uh, just new pirates, if you want, uh, surfing globalization. And it's also the case, as you've pointed out, that some people benefit enormously. And one of the problems we face, not least in the U.S., is that they have tremendous lobbying power. So uh, when money talks, or when you in, in a democracy, that's dangerous because those that benefit write the rules for themselves. And in autocracies or totalitarian states, uh, these people can get into power uh, as well and therefore manipulate the system uh, in their own favor. So it's absolutely the case that the winners and losers are very unevenly distributed in globalization. What's sort of the recommendation to deal with the, the disproportionate power of, of those interested parties uh, in this sort of bureaucratic challenge of, of moving forward and keeping pace with the change? I think there are many different things that, that need to be done. One of the things that needs to be done is very strict control on lobbying, great reductions in the amount of money you need to be an elected representative. And across the board, we really need to practice what we preach around openness and transparency, uh, fairness, rules-based systems. At the regulatory level, we need much more joined-up regulations. Uh, we also need regulators that understand new technologies. One of the lessons of the financial crisis is that the people in regulatory institutions just didn't understand credit derivatives, for example, uh, because they were old-ish men, um, and they were young kids uh, who were very smart doing regulatory arbitrage, perfectly legal, but using new tools uh, to do new things. So how you turn the poachers into gamekeepers and make sure that you constantly renew the capabilities in institutions, uh, the global institutions, the national institutions, is also part of this. The pace of change is accelerating. And with that comes incredible responsibility to refresh and renew everything we do. Professor Ian Golden is the director of the Oxford Martin School at Oxford University in the United Kingdom. He was talking to Mark Bettencourt from the International Monetary Fund. Greenpeace International has condemned Volkswagen's latest confession that it understands carbon dioxide emissions on about 800,000 cars in Europe, calling for a full and independent inquiry into the carmaker's operations. Tom Doble climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace International says governments and regulators around the world must end this deception and ensure Volkswagen upholds emission standards rather than bow to industry lobbying and ease regulations like European governments did. Yeah, so the latest development in Volkswagen scandal is that Volkswagen has admitted basically for 800,000 of its cars that the CO2 emissions and the fuel efficiency figures that they presented are not correct, meaning that there is more CO2 emissions and more greenhouse gas emissions and basically customers have to pay more fuel for their cars. So this is the latest revelation in the scandal that started back in September when VW was caught 
cheating on uh, air pollution standards in the U.S. for uh, half a million cars, and they later admitted that they have put the same cheating software in 11 million cars. So this is continuation of the scandal and basically evidence that VW can't be trusted to basically inform regulators and its customers of the actual emissions, both greenhouse gas and air pollution emission standards of its cars. So basically we are calling for two things. Basically Volkswagen to be fully transparent about exactly what they've cheated on and where they've cheated and to basically reveal the full extent of the implications for all car owners but also are called to regulators and national governments to basically investigate all car makers to look at what the real air pollution, the real greenhouse gas emissions, and the real fuel efficiency standards are for all cars sold in all markets and basically to ensure that those figures presented to customers are the correct figures and there's no, no cheating or deception but also for national governments to enforce air pollution rules and fuel efficiency regulations to make sure car makers can't get away with cheating on the official tests and the official standards across the world because that cheating basically means a lot more local air pollution and a lot more greenhouse gas emissions than should be emitted from cars. Now, this, what does it mean for the public health with regards to this latest Volkswagen's uh, confession? So the latest concession is about increased CO2 emissions and increased fuel consumption from cars. So that's bad news for the climate. It's going to create more climate change. Also, increased fuel consumption will mean more air pollution than if the cars were more fuel efficient. So that leads to more local air pollution, which increases rates of asthma and respiratory problems, particularly for people living near busy roads or in busy towns and cities. Tom Dobo is the climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace International, and he was talking to Wandile Kalipa. Time for economic news. Here's Wesani Matabula. Good evening. South African government has expressed concerns over a 5.2 billion US dollar fine that Nigerian authorities have imposed on the MTN group. However, Minister in the Presidency Jeff Khadebe has told reporters in Cape Town that this will not affect the cordial relations between the continent's two biggest economies. He says government hopes the talks between MTN and Nigerian authorities about the fine will bear fruit. Cabinet also noted developments in Nigeria regarding MTN's 5.2 billion US dollar fine by the Nigerian Communications Commission. Cabinet trusts that the discussions underway between MTN and the Nigerian authorities will result in the speedy resolution of the dispute so as to ensure MTN continues its business of investing in Nigeria's economy. 
And Kenya Safaricom raised its full year income forecast due to a sharp rise in new subscribers and revenue. This as customers increasingly used its mobile payment system and more lucrative data services. In the first half of the year, Safaricom's revenue jumped by 23% to $952.7 million. Safaricom is 40% owned by Britain's Vodafone and has Kenya's biggest subscriber base. And South African car buyers can expect a substantial increase in vehicle prices in the coming months due to the country's weak economy. This emerged at the Ford Motor Corporation of Southern Africa breakfast in Port Elizabeth. Vehicle sales figures that NAMSA released for the month of October shows a decline of 8.6% compared to the 59,335 vehicles sold during the same period last year. The biggest decline this year has been in the rental sector, which is down by 17.3%, while sales to the government have improved by 12.2%. Ford Motor Company's president, Jeff Nemeth, if you look at CPI being between 5 and 6%, you would expect vehicle prices to match the rest of any durable goods. But it, it has, but it hasn't priced at all for the exchange impact. So over the last three or four years, we've been up 18 to 20%, which just covers CPI. So I think what you're going to see in the coming months is some pricing to recover the impact of the weak RAND. BP has signed a preliminary deal with Egypt to develop the Atoll offshore gas field that is now expected to produce first gas in 2018. BP's signing of the heads of agreement with Egypt's Minister of Petroleum followed discussions on Wednesday between BP Chief Executive Bob Dudley and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Assisi, who is on a visit to Britain. BP cut future investment budgets by up to a third to $19 billion US dollars a year, due to weak oil prices. An Italian and uh, oil and gas company, Eni, and Angola State Oil Company, Sonangol, have agreed to finalize the evaluation of a gas-filled project that could generate up to 1.5 gigawatts of electricity for the Southern African nation. Sonangol and Eni say they will conclude the evaluation of the fields in the coming months. The project covers gas fields in the lower Congo Basin, on Africa's west coast. It covers 115,000 kilometers square from the Republic of Congo to Angola. And that's your economics news. Would you like to be featured on our website? Send us interesting pictures such as those of people, events, or anything you think is unique and interesting. Be part of our website and share those memorable moments with Channel Africa and the rest of the world. Don't miss this opportunity. Take a picture now. Pictures can be sent to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. You can view your pictures on www.channelafrica.co.za and also on our Facebook page. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Time for Sports News. Here's Tamek Goza.
In your sport, South African Sports and Recreation Minister Figile Mbalula on Thursday briefed the media on outcomes of the RIP 2015 World Cup as well as rugby transformation in South Africa. Mbalula praised the team for their performance in the World Cup after they lost to record three times champions New Zealand in the semi-final. Mbalula says that there are lots of questions asked around the lack of transformation in Springboks. To this end, I made a commitment to meet with all structures of civil society and individuals who are keen to engage constructively in the interest of the sport and South Africa. I promised that I will specifically meet with COSATU in the Western Cape in order to discuss their petition submitted to our office and also share with them the concrete steps and strategic interventions in our quest to transform and change the South African sporting landscape for good and for better. Balula says that he has not been made aware of any proposed to construct contract extension for Springbok coach Haneke Mayer. Reports are faced before the 2015 World Cup that Saru would offer Mayer another four years. The report ruffles some feathers with many thinking that he is not the man for the job. Mayer has been challenged on his transformation policies while losses to Argentina and Japan have also not helped his cause. But despite all that, there remains a strong belief in rugby circles that Mayer is still being lined up for another four years. Balula says he is not responsible for hiring of any coach in any sporting coach. I don't select players, I don't coach. If Sheikh Mashaba is selected as a coach, I support the coach. If Eneke Meyer is selected, I support the coach. The Minister of Sports doesn't do that. The Olympic Charter will not allow me to do that. Immediately I do that, it will equal to interference, and then that sporting coach will then be disqualified and banned from participation globally. I don't do that. And in cricket, South Africa have entered the Test Series against India with the momentum in their back pocket after winning both the T20 and ODI Series. And on Thursday, they bowled out the host for 201 in the first Test. Nati Chamanos has more. Day one ended with South Africa 28 for two in their first inning, still trailing by 173 runs after India were bowled out for 201. South Africa lost Stian van Sal, LBW to Ravi Chandran Ashwin for five from 23 with 140's name. Faf Duplessis was bowled by Dudeja for naught from four in the ninth over of South Africa's innings. But Dean Algar and Hashim Amla saw things through to the close with Algar making 13 from 59 and Amla will start tomorrow on nine from 34 with 140's name. India were bowled out for two 201 with Dean Algar picking up 4 for 22 in 8 overs, including a maiden. Werner Philander took 2 for 38 in 15 overs, while Imran Tahir picked up 2 for 23 in his 10 that he bowled. On debut, Kahisa Rubada finished with 1 for 30 in 10, while Simon Harmer picked up 1 for 51 in his 14 overs. In India's uh, innings, the top score of 75 came from Murali Vijay, who faced 136 balls and hit 12 fours, but the rest of the batsmen struggled on what has been a very difficult pitch. And now in soccer, South Africa's premiership side, Keza Chiefs captain Sipio Chabalala says that Keza Chiefs are working hard to win the f- psychological battle ahead of the Telkom Knockout semi-final against their arch rivals Orlando Pirates on Saturday. Chabalala says that they are confident and working hard to prepare themselves for the Telkom Knockout semi-final clash. Chabalala says that they need to do well in order to win. Our focus is, is, is um, you know, to, to do well on the day. We, we didn't have a good game, uh, the previous one, and you know we, we tried to uh, rectify our mistakes and see where we went wrong. And you know going forward, um, 
this is a new game. It will be different, and um, all of us, we, we know what is at stake here, and we know that um, it's a game that we need to do very well, but uh, it's, it's going to be a game that, you know, that one will not depend on his talent only, but um, the work ethic as well. That's the end of our sport, and back to Spumelele Zondi. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. Tensions are high in the capital for Jumbura two days before the expiration of the ultimatum given by Burundi's president to owners of illegal weapons. The South Sudan government and rebel faction have denied UN reports that they're planning to rearm and continue with the internal conflict. And Dr. Patrick Nimla Lemunya of Cameroon has won the 2015 Kwame Nkrumah Young Scientist Award. In sport, South African Sports Minister is not aware of Mayor's contract extension. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumale Lezoni, producer, Poseho Dengaget, and co-producer, Sihlen Hovu, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, SMS, plus 27823325905. Plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five or tweet channel Africa One. We leave you with Eno Easy by P Square. <laughs> Yeah, man, we